Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 5 today, verses 5 through 7. What are some of the qualities that make us useful to the body of Christ, the church? This week, we examine a short list of both character qualities that are valuable and also those that are to be avoided. The result of choosing wisely brings some Christians great assurances. Let's find out more. Open your Bible to 1 Peter 5 and listen to this week's message, Making Yourself Useful, from Pastor David Wilson. Today, we're going to talk about making yourself useful. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you'll open your Bibles, we're just about done with this great book of the Bible as far as going through it. We're going to talk about how God can use you in his kingdom. Now, Peter's been writing to a group of people who are going through persecution and discouragement and hard times been encouraging them. And last week we looked at the leadership and how there's supposed to be leaders who honor the Lord, but in the way that they lead people will be honoring to him. And then he begins in verse five of chapter five, talking to others and how all of us can be used, how all of us can be prepared to be used. Would you stand while I read God's word? Verses five down through verse seven. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, help us today. Hold on to this truth of how much you care. We pray, Father, that you would make us useful vessels for you. Help us to come to the place in our life when we understand that we must walk in humility, and that you can use us. We pray that you give us something to take home today, to live out in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I heard about a man who applied for a handyman job. (laughs) He went to the employer. He was interviewing for the job, and the employer asked, can you do carpentry? No, I don't do any carpentry. Well, can you do any bricklaying? No, I don't do any bricklaying. Can you do electrical work? No, I don't know anything about that either. Can you do plumbing? No, I've never done any plumbing. And the man finally said, well, then tell me what is handy about you. He said, I live just around the corner. (laughs) There are a lot of members who are handy just like that. And you know what? We're supposed to be more than just people who sit in church on Sunday. We're supposed to be out in the community. We're supposed to be about the kingdom of God Many years ago, Oliver Cromwell was the 
the reigning in the British government, and he be, they began to run low on silver for coins. And so Lord Cromwell sent his men on an investigation to the local cathedral to see if they could find any precious metals that could be used. And when they returned, they said, the only silver we can find is in the statues of the saints standing in the corners. And to which the radical soldier and statesman of England said, good, we will melt down the saints and put them in the circulation. We are supposed to be in circulation. We're not just a group that huddles here on Sunday morning and sings a few songs and listens to the word of God being proclaimed and then just go out and not do anything. How can God use you? Some of you are thinking, I can't be used by God. Peter is almost like a coach in a locker room right before they go out on the big game and he's trying to motivate them. And, he, and basically he's saying, listen, you folks that are here on the earth, you're Christians, you need to make yourself useful. I can remember my parents telling me that when I was much younger and they were doing something around the house and I probably wasn't. And they said, David, you need to make yourself useful. You need to do something. How can you be made useful in the kingdom of God? Well, first, you've got to have a particular attitude. In verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Here's that word submissive again. What, don't you hate that word? A lot of people don't like the word submit, submission, be submissive. And yet back in chapter 2, we're told that as Christians, we're supposed to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. That is, all of the laws of the land, we're supposed to obey those laws. You submit to those laws. If you don't, you're given a citation or a ticket. We're told in chapter 2 that, that employees should be submissive to their employers. He actually uses the word slaves and masters, but we don't have that today. And so the closest thing would be that as you work for someone, you better be submissive to what they tell you to do or you're not going to have a job very long. And then in chapter 3, he brings up that thing about the wives and husbands. He said, wives should be submissive to their husbands and follow their leadership. But it also says that husbands, there's some times for husbands to be cordial and submissive and to love his wife like the Christ loved the church. But, and, then, and then he talks about angels and, and powers being subject to Christ in chapter 3. So now he says, all of you as believers should be submissive to one another. Well, we don't like that word. But it basically says we're accountable to each other. And believe it or not, you don't know everything about everything. You ever met anybody like that? Thinks they know everything about everything? Don't you just dislike them? I hate those people. I don't hate them, but I just don't like to be around them. You can't tell them anything. But I'm going to tell you, you don't know everything about everything. And God gifts us different ways. He's already talked about the different gifts that we have. And so there are times when we submit to one another. Somebody else might have a good idea. Somebody else might have a better way to do it. And we come with this attitude that we're accountable to one another. I think it's interesting, and I'm not picking on young people, but listen, he says, likewise, you younger people. Some translations say younger men. No, do you think he's picking on young people? No. However, all of us were young once, weren't we? 
once upon a time. Do you remember as a young person having the attitude at some point in your life, those old folks just don't know anything? (laughs) Now, if you say no, you're lying. I know you're lying. I know it. Because as a young person, a lot of times, one of the, the dangers we have is to disrespect authority or those in leadership. Because, well, I know better. And I want to tell you, the older I got, the smarter those old people got to me. Because they knew more than what I probably gave them credit for. And what I want you to understand is that all of these people in here who hair, have hair that have hair or don't have hair and have hair the color of mine, you you need to understand they once were young and it hadn't been that long ago they were young. And up here they still feel young because we're forever creatures. The outer man is perishing. The inward man's being renewed day by day. We're made for eternity. We're going to live forever with the Lord, those of us who believed in Christ. And so we, we still feel young, but our bodies have gotten older. But young people... I'll let you determine what is young. Don't disrespect those who are older than you and don't think for a moment they don't know what they're talking about because I want to tell you that mankind's nature has not changed. There may be different toys to play with now, but the nature of man is still the same. He's still in rebellion against God. And so we've got to submit to one another. Now, I want to tell you, I want to thank those of you who are older than I am. Because when I came here, I was 32 years old. Some of you are still alive. You still survived those years. You were following the leadership of a young person, a young man. And I'm sure there were times that you grit your teeth doing it. But I want to thank you for the times that you submitted to that leadership when you may not have liked it. But I want to thank you for all the wisdom that you've shared through the years with me and how we submit to one another. That's what I want you to see. You can't be used by God if you're a know-it-all. You can't. So don't begin to think you know it all because you don't. Now, with that particular attitude comes a proper attire, I should call it, because in verse 5 it says, clothe, be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This word clothed is only used here. It's the only place you find this particular Greek word. And I don't want to bore you with this, but I want you to understand something. First of all, it's an aorist tense, which means at a point in time, you clothe, you you do this at a point. You do it, but it's also middle voice, which means you yourself do it. And it's an imperative, which is a command. And he's saying, you're going to have a submissive attitude to the Lord, obviously. And by the way, did you know you can't be saved without having a submissive attitude to the Lord because you come saying, I need you, Lord. But you, you clothe yourselves. You put this on. You put on humility. Now, the, the funny thing about humility is you can't brag about it because if you brag about it, you don't have it. The word humility is an interesting word. It means to level a hill or a mountain. 
You've probably heard an angry person say about someone else, I'm going to cut them down to size. Well, humility is cutting yourself down to size so that you don't look over anyone. You don't look down on anyone. You don't have any arrogance and ego sticking out. Most Americans like to wear different logos. Over the years, they've changed. I think today, you see people wearing Under Armour logos. I think Nike still wear Patagonia. I don't know what it is that you wear, but look, Texas Tech. And then there are those who wear that one that's got an A and an M on it too, and then they wear that. And uh, they wear different logos. But there's not a logo for humility because you don't wear it. Humility is hard for us to put on because it's against our spiritual DNA. Part of our DNA is to be proud and and not be humble, but humility goes against our self-centered nature. And he says, you take up the clothing, clothe yourselves with humility. And I personally believe that the apostle is thinking of the time when Jesus, God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, put on a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. Can you think of anything like having the God who created the universe wash your feet? You ever thought of that? And yet that's exactly, I believe, what he's thinking about. He took the towel of a slave, the mark of a slave. When you go into a restaurant, you're looking for somebody who works there. Usually they have a uniform of some kind on indicating that they're an employee of that restaurant The clothing of a child of God is humility. Humility doesn't mean you're a doormat. You don't let people walk over you. You're not, you know, you don't have a backbone. It doesn't mean that. You're a child of God and the Holy Spirit lives in you and you have all of the stuff that God gave you. It's just been brought into control. But humility doesn't mean you let people walk over you. Humility says that I know that I need God. I know that I need God and that God is in control of my life and that I am nothing without him and that I can't do anything without him. Orla Shoup of Albion, Pennsylvania said, when I babysit for my minister's three-year-old, one of our favorite games is go fish. One evening after winning several rounds, she kept bragging about how good she was. Jokingly, I said to her, I'm going to have to teach you a little humility. And immediately she looked up and said, how do you play that? (laughs) How How does humility come? It comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will talk to you at times. You may be driving. You may be sitting at home. I don't know. You may be at work. But the Holy Spirit can convict you of your sin and convict you of things that you were doing that you shouldn't be doing. That brings on humility. Sometimes circumstances of life. We're put in circumstances that are beyond our control. Don't you hate being in those circumstances that you can't fix or you can't control because then you realize how fallible and how small and how human you really are. 
Sometimes God allows circumstances in our life to remind us that he's still in control. I didn't say he caused them, but he allows them to happen. And somehow we need to learn that God, we can count on him. But if we're prideful and arrogant, we get angry with God. Instead of casting our care on him. Sometimes when you consider the word of God, as you begin to read the word of God, you begin to see, you know what? I'm not anywhere close to being like Christ. And you get convicted of your sin and, and humility from the word of God. So God's word is the authority in your life. And if you don't have that authority in your life, you've replaced it with something else. God's word is the authority that shows us how to live. And if you don't have that authority in your life, you've replaced it. Now, if you don't put on the garment of humility, you've left your pride uncovered. Pride is like your skin. You don't have to put it on. You came with skin on. The skin is the largest organ that you have on your body, in your body, I guess, on your body. And, and when you don't cover it, your skin is exposed. Please cover your skin. But the Bible tells us that when we don't have humility, our pride is exposed. Pride's not a very pretty thing. And Peter, he, he states two truths how God responds. First of all, he says in verse 5 that God resists the proud. So how do you know if you're proud? I put an acrostic in there for you. It's not original with me, but I thought it would be something that would be easy to help you remember what pride is. Let's look at it quickly. Pride, P-R-I-D-E. P stands for position. You know, we're all about position. We want to be the top dog. A favorite saying in the business world is, if you're not the lead dog, the scenery never changes. You never hear a crowd saying, uh, we're number two, we're number two. We want to be number one. I want to be at the top. The R stands for rank. We're all conscious of our rank and everybody else's rank. And we always want to be ahead of them. We want our rank to be ahead of them. We want to be ranker than they are. And that's what we usually wind up being. Some, of, some people don't even get that. The great conductor Leonard Bernstein once was commenting on different instruments in the orchestra. Someone asked him, what's the most difficult instrument to play? His answer, the most difficult instrument to play is second fiddle. I could get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And if no one plays second, we have no harmony. We're worried about our rank. The third is I, and it just means that. I must be the center. Isn't it interesting? In the center of the word pride is the, or is the letter I. I always wants to be the center of attention. Our universe revolves around us. Many years ago, the philosopher Aristotle and Ptolemy proposed that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun and the stars orbited around us. And this was the belief for almost 2,000 years. In fact, it was the official position of the Catholic Church during that time. So in the 16th century, when Nikolai Copernicus 
And later Galileo proposed the sun was the center of our solar system. It was considered blasphemy. Now, have you made the same discovery or do you act as if you are the center of your own little universe? I'm telling you that today our nation and our world has this disease. Everybody is concerned about themselves and, and they base everything on, on words like, I think, I feel, I want this. I, I, I. And pride is, means that your I is all there is. <laughs> You're the center of your own universe. The D is for destruction. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The only place pride doesn't go before destruction is in the dictionary. <laughs> According to Isaiah 14, Satan was once a beautiful angel named Lucifer, and he fell because he said, I will ascend and make my throne on high. There's position. I will be like the most high. There's rank. I will be number one. Notice how the eyes that he said, I, 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 and God cast him out. Pride always goes before destruction. Amen. And then the letter E is the word embarrassment. Remember who's writing this letter? The Apostle Peter. He's the big boasting fisherman, the braggart. How many times did Peter always speak up? I won't do it, Lord. He said, y'all are going to deny me. Not me. I'll never deny you. I'll never turn my back on you, even if all the other ones leave. Before the rooster crowed the next morning, he'd already denied Jesus three times. And the scripture says that Jesus fixed his eyes on Peter. And Peter ran out and wept bitterly. That's what pride does. It brings you to embarrassment. Peter quotes Proverbs 3, 34. It's a play on words. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In other words, if men do not place themselves in humility, God places himself against them. Let's put it in West Texas terms. You do not want to butt heads with God. How's that for you? You're going to lose every time. Isn't it interesting that pride was the first sin? It's the chief cause of human strife. It's the original sin. It's the uh, undue sense of superiority. It's hostility between man and God. It affects our relationships. It affects how we know God. It affects how we walk with God. In fact, if you have pride, you cannot be saved. You haven't been saved because in your pride, you say, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need religion. Pride says, God, I have separated myself. Humility says, God, I've separated myself from you, and I cannot save myself. But today, so many people, because of their pride, they won't be obedient to the Lord. They won't follow the Lord. I've got my pride. The symptoms of pride are stealing God's glory and taking credit for the gifts that he's given you. Another symptom is the self-centeredness or a demanding spirit or sarcasm or judgmental critical attitude, impatience, an unteachable spirit. Pride will ruin your life. Pride keeps you from knowing God. 
Pride keeps you from being used by God in a way that you thought you could never be used. There are a lot of people today that sort of have the attitude, God, you're so lucky to have me on your side. I've been in churches where people said, you know, preacher, if I didn't come to this church, this church would fold up. That's pride. If I quit coming here, if I quit doing this, if I quit doing that, this place will fold up. As if the church didn't exist before you got there and the church is going to exist after you're gone. John Brody some of y'all remember him, former quarterback, San Francisco 49ers, multi-million dollar player. Somebody asked him one day, why do you have to hold the football when they kick field goals and points after touchdown? And Brody said, because if I didn't, it would fall over. <laughs> Muhammad Ali. Y'all know, y'all remember Muhammad Ali? He was about to take off in an, back in his heyday, in his prime. He was about to take off on an airplane flight, and the stewardess reminded him to fasten his seatbelt. He came back brashly, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The stewardess quickly came back and said, Superman don't need an airplane either. <laughs> he fastened his seatbelt. But the other way that God responds is he rewards the humble. God resists the proud, but graces the humble. That's what salvation is. When you come to the place, when you realize, I cannot save myself, I'm separated from God, I am doomed for eternity, I'm already condemned. But Lord, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sin, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did for me on the cross and rose again. And I ask you now to forgive me of my sin and save me. I humble myself before you. And God says, yes. He graces the humble. One of the best passages in Scripture describing humility is found in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read a paraphrase of this. It's called the message. A paraphrase means that somebody's taken the English translation of the Bible and they've written it out in words easy to understand. It's not a translation. I suggest that you get a translation of Scripture and you can read a paraphrase along with it. But the message says it this way. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human it was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings will bow in worship before Jesus. You'll notice in verse 6, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Hmm. 
People knew what that meant. They'd been bowing under the mighty hand of Rome for many years. And usually when you bow under the mighty hand of a dictator or a a dominating nation, you're ground even further down into the dirt. But here it says, when you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, it's different. He exalts you. He lifts you up. He saves you. Exodus 13, 9 says, with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 13, 9, thou hast only begun to show your servant thy greatness and your mighty hand. Deuteronomy 9, 26, God brought his people forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the last few words of that verse, 6 says, that God may exalt you in due time. There's that word time again. Two words in the New Testament. One is chronos. You've got a chronograph that you look at often while I'm preaching. It's called a watch. And then there is the kairos, which means a specific time, an appointed time. And God's going to exalt you in due time. Some he exalts at other times. Some are later. But humility is thinking... that you can figure everything out, that you can't figure out everything for yourself. Pride is thinking you can figure everything out for yourself. But humility is trusting God's plan for you. Submission is required. Humility is required. But you can't be effective unless you have one other item. And I call it a peaceful assurance verse 7 says casting all your care upon him for he cares for you do you think anybody cares you know people today want to know someone cares in 1924 a young boy by the name of Jack Sundine was, had the opportunity to meet the president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, in the White House. And Jack recalls as he waited in long line with his father, he noticed that the president was saying something to every person as he shook hands. He got excited about the thought of having the president of the United States speak some profound words of wisdom to him. Finally, the thrilling moment arrived, and as young Jack shook hands with Calvin Coolidge, Coolidge bent over and said three words Jack never forgot. He said, move along quickly. (laughs) What a disappointment. He got the impression the president didn't even care he was there. It's true, sometimes people don't care about us. I can remember, now we, we cared for our friends, but we would sometimes joke with our friends when we were young, youth. We would, you know, they would tell us some big problem. We'd say, why don't you call somebody who cares? <laughs> and then we really wanted to add insult to injury. We would hand them a dime and say, well, actually we would hand them a, and by the way, those young people, there were pay phones at that time. <laughs> And they were a dime. Then they went to a quarter, and now they disappeared because all of you have a phone. It's a pay phone in your pocket. You're paying for it. But the, but the fact is, we would, we would hand them a dime and say, here, call somebody who cares. And if we were really mean, we'd hand them two dimes and say, here, call all your friends. <laughs> but sometimes we get the idea, does anybody care? 
And we were, we, I want you to understand, we weren't really that mean. We were just teasing one another. But here it says that God really cares. So what can you do? You can cast, casting all your care upon him. The only place this word is used in the New Testament, cast. Means, no, excuse me, there's one other place. There's two places. Clothe, this is the only place that's used. Cast, it's used twice. It's used in Luke 19.35, where the disciples threw their garments on the colt on which Jesus rode as he made his royal entry into Jerusalem. Casting all your anxiety on the Lord. It's equivalent of putting a saddle on a horse. Can you imagine you getting on a horse to ride and carrying the saddle with you? I, I brought this pack in here. We're going to let it represent. By the way, it was cleared by security, so you're safe. <laughs> We're going to let it represent um, our anxiety. This pack is anxiety. It's all in there. All the cares that I have are in that pack right there. We carry them around. You are trying to carry them yourself. You're carrying them yourself instead of tossing up upon the Lord. The Apostle Paul was an expert at casting his care. I mean, he'd been stoned and shipwrecked and beaten with sticks. He had plenty to worry about, but he refused to be anxious. And even when he was sitting in a dark prison cell, he wrote these words again, paraphrase don't fret or worry instead of worrying pray let petitions and praises shape your worries into your prayers letting God know your concerns before you know it a sense of God's wholeness will come and settle down on you it's a wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life and he says to cast all your cares you know I could empty out some of that pack and say but, but I'm still carrying around and and, and why don't we give him all our anxiety? Because we want to hang on to it. And while you're bent over, well, all under this anxiety, God can't use you very well if you're worried all the time. All means all. Throw it all on Christ. And the word cares means anything that you're anxious about. It's having a disturbed and distracted mind. It's the fear or dread of something that's going to happen. Some of the visible symptoms of anxiety are restlessness and irritability and fatigue and difficulty in concentrating, difficulty sleeping. Job had anxiety, didn't he? He lost everything in one day. He lost his family, his fortune, his health. In Job 30, verse 27, he said, The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. If Job had known the end, like we do, that churning wouldn't have been as difficult for him. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been difficult, but it would not have been as difficult to handle. You see, our culture today is experiencing an anxiety epidemic. It's nothing new. People have worried all their lives. But listen to this. Medical studies have shown that much about what we worry about is needless. 40% of what we worry about will never happen. 
30% of what we worry about is from the past. It can't be changed. 12% is worry about criticism from others. Much of it is untrue. 10% of the things we worry about are health issues, which are actually made worse when we worry. And 8% of what we worry about constitutes real problems that we have to face. So 92% of our anxiety is needless. We're supposed to cast 100% of our anxiety on the Lord. The psalmist says, casting all your cares upon the Lord, to cast your burdens upon the Lord. And all it means is just let it roll off on the Lord. Reminds me of an old song, an old hymn. A great old hymn written by Joseph Scriven. I want you to sing it with me. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins, all our sin, griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. What a privilege to everything to God in prayer. Everything to God. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Oh, what needless pain we All because we do not carry. Everything to God in prayer. We do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, the second verse says this. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. God cares. It says he cares for you. Thomas Halliburton said, to carry care to bed is to sleep with a pack on your back. Be hard to sleep with this, wouldn't it? So you need to give it to the Lord. And if you don't know Christ, I can tell you that you'll never know him as long as your pride is in the way. And if you think for a moment you don't need God, trust me, the scripture makes it clear you need him in your life. You need him for eternity. It's another old song. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus, how I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would love to tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. You may not think God cares, but he loves you more than you love yourself. And he wants more than anything for you to know him as your Savior.
So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, there's a God in heaven who knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He cares for you. And you turn from your sin. It's called repentance. You change your mind about it, and you come to him, and you ask him to forgive you. The Scripture says he will. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, and he did. And you believe that he rose again. He did. You commit your life and by faith and trust and say, Lord, here is my life. I give it to you. It's an act of your will. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of submission and humility. And he'll save you right now. Would you pray with me? Thank you for that message, Pastor David. Here in 1 Peter 5, the apostle stresses the extreme importance of casting off pride with all of its destructive consequences, and instead putting on humility, the proper attire and attitude for a Christ follower, understanding that if we do so, God will, in his perfect timing, exalt us, and that we can place every care upon him because of the great care he has for us. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.